0: SASWAT is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit SASWAT.com. This is Saswa, a podcast about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined tonight by Mark Matsky. Hello there. And tonight we are talking about Bigfoot and more specifically John Green and how he relates to the subject of Bigfoot and uh, perhaps no other figure in Bigfootery has left as big a uh, print No pun intended. Uh, On the subject as John Green, who was a uh, newspaper man, a self-described newspaper man, who cataloged and researched and investigated uh, Bigfoot reports from the, I want to say the 1950s. I know Mark will be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say the 1950s up until the uh, aughts. So he had a very long, distinguished career in a field that is uh filled with people that come and go on a daily basis and um i you know i've only i can't i can't talk too much about this as if i'm some sort of john green expert cuz i've really only started discovering his work in the last year i'd say and really kind of learning about his interaction with the some of the other uh figures in in this subject um, but I, I have read the uh, I've talked to you about it before the the book I got for Christmas last year, the best of Sasquatch Bigfoot. I've read some of the apes among us. I still need to finish it. But um, as a guy that does freelance journalism myself, I really respect Green just for his um, his investigative uh, sort of matter of fact way of talking about the subject and writing about the subject and i know i'm jumping right into the topic of tonight's show without even really talking about the show at all but i feel like this is an episode that you've wanted to do for a long time mark and um so i'm i'm gonna let you ha- handle this one this is gonna be you're a you're point man on this episode so just take point us through man. this
1: however you want to do it all right well this is uh a show that's been knocking around for a while, as Seth said. And part of that's due to the fact just when we put out some feelers through the Facebook page and we asked folks what their favorite Bigfoot book was, by far the most mentioned author was John Green. And it just brought back to me the fact that he is uh, you know, the man of letters in the Bigfoot community and uh, remains so to this day undisputed. And his style of writing is very, very welcoming. We like to think of ourselves here as sort of a welcoming group that would uh, help anybody uh, down the path to really discover the Bigfoot topic. And uh, John Green is the trailblazer as far as that's concerned. He's very, very readable, and he's a very affable type of person, and as you really pour through his work, what you'll notice is that he takes the subject seriously, but he doesn't take himself very seriously at all. And will often talk about how his opinion really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things and approaches it with a lot of humility and uh, good humor as well, which is uh, an example that uh, should be followed, I think, uh, when you consider the whole thing and you, you see you you've got two facts that
2: cannot be in any way challenged something makes huge somewhat human-like footprints and it sh- should be possible to find out what that something is and also all over the world and throughout history and in very much so at the present time People have been describing seeing these very large, hair-covered bipedal animals. The The fact that there are all these people who tell this experience also cannot be challenged. These people exist. And that also must have some explanation. Well, you've got, unless you wish to go into supernatural areas, you've got only two possible explanations. Either there is an animal which accounts for all the stories and the footprints or else there is, this has been a a human activity throughout the world and throughout history, manufacturing evidence that such an animal exists. And the, the test of Occam's razor is that you take the simpler explanation. Right. And a
1: simpler explanation is... What I'd like to do now. first is talk just a little bit about John Green uh, from a biographical standpoint. He was born in 1927, and he grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And he says that he heard about Sasquatch stories from the time he was a small boy, but he never took them seriously, and he didn't really believe that anybody else did either. Uh, Mark, so what, was
0: that, the, what was the name of the guy that was in Vancouver who kind of coined that Sasquatch phrase. Do you know that name off the top of your head? I think J.W. Burns. J.W. Burns, yeah, because this is where a lot of that Sasquatch, big, tall, Indian-type folklore originated, so it makes sense that the Green is from that area. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. And so he, he grew up hearing the stories, like everybody did in that area, but assuming that they were just campfire tales or fairy tale-type stories, When he was um, a young man, 1954, he bought the newspaper at Agassiz, and that was uh, the Agassiz Harrison Advance. And in 1955, he wrote his first Sasquatch story. And this is, to me, really fascinating, because it was one of those April Fool's Day type stories about a lady being carried away from the Harrison Hot Springs Hotel. So he meant it completely as a joke and there's all sorts of historical precedent for that. But it also gives you a sense of his thoughts on the topic at the time. Those would change rather rapidly over the next couple of years because in 1956, one Rene de Hinden would come into John Green's office looking for information about Sasquatch, and John Green remembers being somewhat amused by this visit, and also feeling a bit sorry for De Hinden because he didn't think that there was any substance to the stories whatsoever. Little did he know that he would end up spending an awful lot of his life um, tagging along with uh, Rene and their various exploits and places that they were called to.
0: Now, Mark, er- early on like this, why, for For one thing, what was De Hinden doing there? He was just like trying to dig up reports?
1: Yes, At that point in time, I do not believe he was a Canadian citizen, but he's getting his citizenship. So he was intensely interested in Sasquatch and Bigfoot stories. And evidently, because of the area, uh, he showed up to talk to John Green. He didn't show up initially to talk to Green because he had a reputation as a, a Bigfoot scholar. This was well before he started to amass the reports. This was just sort of a right place, right time sort of meeting between the two.
0: What what did, did does Green say what he thought of uh, DeHinden at that time, other than feeling sorry, sorry for him?
1: I, I think um, just beyond that, just sort of amused that somebody would be that interested in the topic because he was carrying over his childhood assumptions about those stories. What's interesting is within a year's time his thoughts would start to change very abruptly because this is kind of a, a cool story that you can actually sort of relate to, I think. The, the village council at Harrison Hot Springs was trying to des- decide what to do with a grant that was being offered to them by the government of British Columbia because it was the 100th birthday coming up of British Columbia. And they were offering grants to local communities. So they were thinking, what, what can we do with our grant? And somebody uh, who... Is lost in the the mists of time, came up with the suggestion that they should have a Sasquatch hunt, that they would finance that and publicize it, and that would put Harrison Hot Springs on the map. And just the fact that that was brought up started to change John Green's ideas, because what came out in the wake of that decision and that announcement is people started to actually talk about experiences that they were having. And not just people, but people that John Green knew personally. And incidentally, that is sort of the, uh, truly the friend of the friend type effect that led John Green into a direct uh, and exploration and investigation of the Ruby Creek in incident. Small
3: local newspapers, Mr. John Green, publisher of a newspaper at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia, began investigating some of these sightings. Here is John Green to report on a sighting he investigated in 1957. When I first came here in about 1957, it was still pretty well open. But all this has has grown up since then. Now, uh, what happened at that time was that uh, Mrs. George Chapman lived in a house down by the river behind me here. Uh, She was in the house, and the children were outside, one of them came in and told her that there was a cow coming out of the woods. So she looked out and she saw this man-like thing, but uh, about eight feet tall and completely covered with hair like a bear. And uh, she knew it to be a Sasquatch. Uh, this was you know, quite a well-known thing to the Indian people. And she was frightened, so she took the children, ran down to the river, and then through the graveyard, which is right behind me here and uh, came out just about here onto the track and then uh, ran on down to Ruby Creek. Now, uh, she'd really only had one quick look at the thing, so
1: uh, it wouldn't be that. Okay. which blew my mind when yeah. I was reminded of that he was front and center in actually being on site and investigating uh, the claims of the story at Describe, uh, Ruby Creek. So Ruby Creek was like his first sort of encounter with one of his can- first being uh you know acting in sort of an investigative role. Okay. Along with that in 1957 he got to know and interview uh one Albert Osman. Right. Which, which is pretty pretty interesting. But on the Ruby Creek incident, um he knew someone who worked with George Chapman was the uh, father in that uh, the Chapman Ruby Creek account and uh, that got him you know directly to the site and so he started collecting all the reports that he was starting to hear and as I said he um, talked to Albert Osman and at first did not buy his story at all but he was very uh, diligent in trying to vet Osman's story, and brought a number of different people in to talk to him. And it was after speaking with someone who, um, you know, really evidently had a good uh, uh, detector of um, untruths, shall we say, he uh, he felt that with all these people who have talked to Osman and they accept his story, even though there's real problems with it, um, there must be some veracity to it. And what he ended up saying later in life about the Osman account is that whether or not Osman was embellishing or, you know, inventing huge parts of the plot of his story, the description that he gave of the creature fit. Mm -hmm. And this was long before any sort of uh, popular Bigfoot picture had been burned into the public consciousness. So it's kind of an interesting way that Green went at that. He said, you know, whatever else you believe about Osman. He described a Bigfoot as we know them today without any coaching on the part of uh, pop culture or something like that. Yeah. Um, he also, and the reports that I've read and the various information says that he had uh, direct correspondence with William Rowe although it, it does not seem that he sat down and had an interview with Rowe because uh, William Rowe moved, actually, right after um, he had his sighting. So it was not feasible for Green to interview him one-on-one, but they corresponded through the mail, and Green famously you know, asked uh, him to take legal action to vouch for himself, which he did,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and... Uh, Incidentally then, in going back just for a second to the Harrison Hot Springs Bigfoot hunt that they proposed, um, the British Columbia uh, government ended up turning down that idea and the council bought a furnace instead. But uh, none of that really matters because those were the events that really propelled John Green into uh, an entirely different direction in his life.
0: Let me cut you off real quick uh,
1: concerning Roe.
0: I'm looking in my book here cause I knew there was something in here that I had found interesting and, and it was a sworn affidavit that William Rowe uh, wrote John Green uh, about his encounter and, and, This is slightly off topic topic, because it's more about Rowe than it is about Green. But Green does say in the book, I never did meet Mr. Rowe and I knew very little about him. But in 1969, on our trip across Canada, I met two zoologists in different cities who had corresponded with him concerning his observations of buffalo. They both considered him to be a well-qualified and reliable student of wildlife. And I know you and I, when we had talked about the William Rowe sighting, we referenced the fact that this wasn't some guy that was a yokel out there just making up a story about some strange animal he'd seen. This was a very qualified man that was, mm-hmm. you know, had a very unexplainable encounter.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly the type of report that appealed to green the most because mm-hmm. of the level of detail mm-hmm. and the prolonged, um, amount of time that Ro spent as a witness. And that, those were the ones that really excited John green and, uh, kind of quickly moved him from skeptic or, or unbeliever into someone who was really willing to consider the possibility. The thing that I think more than anything tipped him over into the realm of believer, if you want to refer to Green in that way, was the 1958 uh, Jerry Crew footprint find and his subsequent investigation of that. Um, In 1958, after seeing Jerry Crew's picture in a Vancouver newspaper, he decided to go to Bluff Creek, and he took his wife and somebody else. And almost immediately, he and his wife found a footprint. As you read Green's account in the book uh, Apes Among Us, it truly is as if they pulled up, they got lost, they almost ran into a logging truck. It's all this sort of comedic stuff. And then they finally reach their destination they get out and Mrs. Green almost steps in a fresh Sasquatch print. It's, and it,
0: this is such a great time too in history. Yeah. Because yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you're talking about Jerry Crew, so that's literally when the term Bigfoot was, you know, started being bandied about. And uh, there you've got Green right in the thick of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And once again, I mean, what we're presented with is that. Uh, you know, John Green was not just compiling these reports from afar. I mean, he was there at these, you know, ground zero type Bigfoot events. Mm-hmm. And he, all these connections keep happening. Like in the case of the uh, you know, Jerry Crew in Bluff Creek, he would go on to say, Green would go on to say that one of the most important things that happened during that experience is that he met uh, the taxidermist uh, Bob Titmus. Yes. He's sort of a forgotten figure in uh, the whole Bluff Creek um, history, and these days it seems somewhat fashionable in sort of modern Bigfoot literature to really trash Bob Titmus and call him into question on just about everything, but uh, he had the full and complete trust of John Green. He would come to really trust in Titmus and his uh, abilities to track and hunt and Titmus was just a crackerjack guy at finding tracks out in the wilderness, which I think is why some people call him into question. Actually,
0: yeah, and there's—I I know there's all this infighting in the in the Bigfoot world, and it goes back to these original guys because I—I I can't remember who it is, and I—I I hate to say it, but I think it was Byrne that really trashed Titmus. I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's true, but it was one of those original guys. And so you had, there's this common phrase in big footery, uh, the four horsemen of Sasquatchery, and it would be John Green, Peter Byrne, Grover Krantz, Renee DeHinden, right? Those four? That's the big four? I believe so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. and, and, And that totally makes sense, what you say, because there was no love lost between Byrne and green and titmus on one side and to Hinden as well mm-hmm. uh burn really rubbed them all the wrong way burns made that's a lot <laughs> burn made a lot of enemies he, he certainly did he
0: it's certainly interesting did. it's it's interesting one of my favorite things one of my favorite aspects of all of this is that those early days that the history there between you know the the fighting between different bigfoot researchers and kind of the interplay between them. And then you get into the seventies and you've got Robert W. Morgan come in and, and you can see a lot of this stuff play out in some of the, not just the literature, but some of the documentaries that focus on some of these characters. Cause there, there's uh, they all played some role in those things. There's the Bigfoot man or beast documentary that Robert W. Morgan produced. And that's got an interesting discussion during the film with Renee DeHinden and John Green and Robert W. Morgan arguing about kill, no kill.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And like it or not, uh, Green was always very pro-kill. Exciting and so on, but that's
3: about all it does. Morgan has driven to the Canadian border to confer with two men who are chasing Sasquatch through British Columbia, where creature sightings have become commonplace. Renee DeHinden lives here year-round and has been on Bigfoot's trail for two decades. John Green, author-journalist, has written three books on the subject. Over a picnic table rich with Bigfoot artifacts, the three men discuss their different operating methods. Hendon and Green both say the creature must be brought in dead or alive. Morgan contends that Sasquatch is too human-like to destroy. Uh, I don't think there's any argument that the fastest way to bring this to legislation for the betterment of the species, the fastest way would be killing one. The only way... Possibly. However, the killing of one, how does the, I, I just feel that there, I, I really feel that the youth of this world and the, the people that are young at heart have had enough of the killing. I really feel they have had sufficient of the slaughter species for the so-called enlightenment of man. But I think that it is time for a new precedent to be set for legislation to be passed on an accepted species without
0: and uh, right up until I mean I th- I think even today I know there was a point in the in the aughts where people were saying that he wasn't but I mean as far as I know to the best of my knowledge he is he is quoted as saying there's only one way to prove this thing and that's with a body and uh, so I don't know that that would make him terribly popular today but it's it's a matter of fact that that's that's his deal
1: it is I think that's the one way in which people are somewhat embarrassed of John Green, if they are these days, is on his uh, pro-kill stance. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that that was sort of the final wedge between him and DeHinden, actually, was uh, that was one of the things that finally uh, caused them to pull apart, which was pretty sad because they had kind of ridden shotgun together on a lot of really important um, investigations. So tell that, tell
0: me about that then DeHinden. See, I've always thought DeHinden had to be. He's got to be pro kill. I mean, he talks in that interview about how he's pro kill.
1: Yeah, but he evidently he he worked himself away from that. Really? And, uh, yeah, and, <sighs> and I want to backtrack to 1959. Yeah, sorry, because, I deleted derail. Yeah, <laughs> Bob Titmus. You know the. um the whole Bluff Creek, Jerry Crew thing, uh, John Green goes so far as to say that meeting Bob Titmus was the most important thing that came out of that experience, which is a rather staggering thing to say because it was really seeing the tracks in Bluff Creek. That was the moment for John Green where he came to a realization that he had to find out what was making these tracks. And he was convinced through some of his field studies that a human being could not make these and the places where they found these tracks, you couldn't take some sort of front end loader out there or something and just easily plant these tracks. You know, the whole Ray Wallace allegations, notwithstanding, he, it was seeing the tracks and finding, um, tracks that looked similar to each other in diverse places. What that was the one thing above everything else that, um, Sort of locked it in for, for Mister Green that he had to f- to find this, you know, get to the bottom of this mystery. Mm-hmm. And so, in fall of 1959, Bob Titmus wrote to say that some more really good tracks had been discovered. So, uh, Renee de and John Green went to Bluff Creek. It was during this experience that they were introduced to Ivan Sanderson, which is an, another extremely important uh, personality in that whole world. And it was during this particular trip that the infamous ill-fated Pacific Northwest expedition was hatched. Yeah. And the the principal players in that were uh, Bob Green, Ivan Sanderson, Rene DeHinden, uh, Bob Titmus, of course, and Tom Slick. Yeah, fun And Tom Slick was the San Antonio millionaire who had money to burn, evidently, and was highly interested in funding and quote unquote leading expeditions to search for the yeti in uh, in and around Everest and then also became very excited by the reports of bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest and took well, yeah. it upon himself to or try to organize this group to do a similar search.
0: Right, because I mean he's been funding these these expeditions in Nepal and all this for for ages now looking for the Yeti, and then all of a sudden reports of basically the same or at least a very similar type creature start showing up in his own, you know, hometown, basically. I mean, his his own country. Mm-hmm. it's like, all right, screw this. We're going there.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: right. I mean, that's the way I've always read it. It's like, yeah. turn around, 180, let's go back home.
1: <laughs> definitely. It's a little easier, really, to mount yeah. an expedition in your own country. And I yeah. think that's definitely... One of the things that was at work there. Um, Green has some great quotes about this because he says from the beginning this was just uh, just a fiasco. In a 2008 interview that I listened to him in, he said that this quickly turned into a farce and a fiasco. And in his book, he's quoted as saying, "The essential problem was we all had different ideas about how we should be hunting it and where, and they just really could not get together." On the basics of how they were going to do this, um, they all wanted to do it, but their methodologies they just could not agree. And and Green goes on to say, also, I believe it's in Apes Among Us and maybe elsewhere that he says um, you have to think about it this way. Here's a here's a group of people who are willing to be bullheaded enough to take all the slings and arrows that go along with saying in the culture of that time, I'm interested in finding Bigfoot. That worked for them in that regard, but you get a bunch of those type of people together trying to pull in one direction, Mm -hmm. they're still going to be bullheaded. They're still going to think their ideas are the best ideas, and it just was, it never even really got off the ground, in part because Tom Slick saw himself as the leader of this group, even though he'd had, you know really nothing uh, comparable to the experience in outdoorsmanship that these other guys had, Um, he made Titmus sort of a field deputy leader. And when things just weren't going anywhere, um, Tom Slick brings in his ringer, Peter Byrne. (laughs) And so introducing Peter Byrne to the mix in that way is really what set... Uh, Dehinden and Green and Titmus against him they just couldn't take his confidence and his uh just his whole demeanor just rub them all the wrong way so what ends up happening is that Titmus Green and Dehinden go back to British Columbia still loosely under the Pacific Northwest Expedition banner but they really didn't want anything to do <laughs> with Slick or uh Burn after that and um uh, forever after there was this antipathy between those two groups
0: those personalities are so big yes i mean uh, cuz de hinden and and burn i mean burns this very dignified kind of i mean he's your prototypical you know um he's not british what is he irish irish i believe but he's very—I mean—he comes across as almost British. I mean, this
3: mm-hmm.
0: regal attitude about him, kind of like it, just reminds you of a—you know—the type of guy he was, which is like a big game hunting and. You know, out in the woods or out in the jungle, you know, safaris and all, and all this kind of stuff. And then he got DeHinden, who's in like coconut beer ads and mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's like cussing everyone out. And yeah, then he got Dr- John Green, who's a little more reserved and very analytical. And it's, it's so interesting that it that is
1: early. Those are early days of Bigfoot. Yep. By all accounts, DeHinden could not abide. Peter Byrne, right, and it was just for all those reasons that you described, just sort of this pompous attitude, and and Hinden really didn't get along with anyone to begin with. It's sort right. of a miracle that he and Green were friends for as long as they were. Yeah, but just the uh, it, it just didn't work. It just crashed and burned, which led to sort of a quiet period, if you will, in uh, all the Bigfoot goings on. They did find tracks in British Columbia, Titmus. Green and DeHinden in 1961. But things don't really heat up again until 1965. And that's when Green first met uh, one Roger Patterson, who was working on a Bigfoot book at the time. And uh, Patterson paid a visit to John Green, who by then was getting a reputation as a, a serious Bigfoot researcher. And uh, Patterson wanted to use some of John Green's news articles in his book. And it's my understanding that he did just that. Um, Two of the most prominent, of course, being Osman and Rowe. And it's been suggested by maybe even Green himself that this sort of set him in a mindset of thinking about writing his own book because he let Patterson have the Osman and the Rowe stories and then immediately almost regretted it. (laughs) Like, I wish I would have hung on to those because they're such good stories. Uh, But he gave them to Patterson. And of course, then in 1967, we have the uh, uh, Patterson and Gimlin obtaining the footage of uh, Bigfoot in Bluff Creek. And another, again, getting uh, back into John Green and, and researching his life. There he is again among the first group of people to ever watch this film.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it was, uh, let's see, this is his brother-in-law, um, you know, Patterson's brother-in-law, Al Atley. It was Roger Patterson, uh, Rene DeHinden, Jim McLaren, and John Green. Uh, those were the men who saw that film for the very first time at uh, Al Atley's house. And it was Green that investigated
0: the 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 tracks too, right? Am I wrong on that? The tracks that they had to cover up with the cardboard yes. and bark and all that. Yes, he did see those. Yeah, Patterson. So Patty's uh, the the Bigfoot that's in the film. Patty's footprints. Green was involved in the. Uh, the, okay. And, and the other thing is that I'm, now that I'm talking about this, I'm recalling that there's a video online of Green in Bluff Creek. What, what is, that? is that? Do you know the yeah. video I'm talking about? Yeah,
1: that's awesome. Because what, what Green endeavored to do kind of on his own is to go back to Bluff Creek. And I believe uh, the one man that I just mentioned, uh, Jim McLaren, it may have been him or is another acquaintance of his who is fairly tall. He went through a reconstruction of the footage, where he mm-hmm. tried to find exactly the same spot where uh, Roger Patterson took the film. He tried to direct his friend to stand in the uh, various places and walk the same path for the purpose of trying to find the approximate size of the figure in the Patterson film.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so there's a there's you know, all sorts of comparisons that have been made, the cameras that he used and things of that nature. But yes, that is a thing <laughs> that Green did <laughs> is, you know, not not totally unlike today's Finding Bigfoot where they go back and do these loose recreations to get an approximate size. That's what Green was doing, but with a lot more in the way of careful measurements and right. uh, trying to, to use some actual uh, scientific methodology to to make these comparisons.
0: And that brings me to something I wanted to talk about real quick, which is that his, it, the, it, the research style of John Green is so, um, so it, I guess so, so his own in that he is a newspaper man. His specialty seems to be talking to people, learning their story he does do a lot of that analytical stuff. He does examine footprints. He's obviously the guy with the huge uh, footprint cast collection. You know, there's all those pictures of him with footprint casts. But to me, he's always the interviewer. He's he's always in my head. He is the guy that talked to people, got their story, and it's it's interesting. Green never saw a Bigfoot. To 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 my knowledge, in fact, Green hasn't. I don't think DeHinden ever did. I don't know that Byrne claims to have. Uh, Krantz I'm not sure about. Which is interesting because these guys are the guys that are, the figureheads. <laughs> but um, yeah, Green's this very, he just collecting stories. That's it's not the only thing he did, but that's one of his major contributions. And he and I don't even think he would argue that, especially if you look at, you know, his database of citing reports online that you can find, it's it's massive. I mean, it's comparable to like the BFRO, and then you realize this is just one man taking these reports. This isn't a giant, you know, uh, group of, of individuals spread out across the United States. This is one man who is taking sighting reports from all over the world.
1: I think by the time they were done counting, it was in the neighborhood of 4,000 reports that he had uh, compiled.
0: Right. And you put one your guy. finger
1: on something that is absolutely true about Green, and that is that he had a skill and a, just a natural talent to be able to put people at ease and to get their story. Mm-hmm. And not only in a sit-down fashion, like with the Albert Osman, for example, and so many of the other witnesses that he was able to talk to personally, but one thing that he really very intentionally and carefully did is he was able later in his life to take these long trips across North America with the express purpose of touching base with other people who are compiling reports. Yeah. And the point in talking to them and making this trip was to compare stories. You know, what stories do you have? Let me show you what I've got. And so his whole, his whole uh, research approach was very much open and public, let's share accounts, let's try to come to some sort of consensus together. And I think that continues to be one of his enduring qualities that the Bigfoot world would do well to appropriate more of is this idea that we're all trying to get to the bottom of this mystery together. I mean, he really seems like, um, as you read about him and, and learn his personality or just listen to him speak when, in the places where he's recorded... This is something that he is deeply interested in and is deeply interested in other people who are interested in it, mm-hmm. which is really kind of neat. And yeah. uh, I think that's part of what his legacy really will be is sort of a sort of a, a shared enterprise idea to all mm-hmm. that. Um, following up after the, the Patterson-Gimlin, and I'll talk a little bit later about what his thoughts about that film are, because they're they're uh, kind of important, I think. In 1968, he came out with his very first writing on the Bigfoot subject called "On the Track of Sasquatch," and that led into 1969, where we get to Seth, one of your favorite uh, sort of uh, epitome moments of the whole Pacific Northwest. Uh, it's the Bosberg incident. Great, great. Yeah, in mid this happened in mid December. And the thing that I'm sure frustrated the heck out of John Green is that when this all went down, he was not able to get down there immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, Green had a, a habit of when there was something fresh happening, especially in Bluff, Bluff Creek, um, he would get down there as soon as possible. But whatever the circumstances were, he couldn't do that in the case of Bossberg, So he had to wait for a little while, almost until the dust had literally settled and the only tracks that he was able to really look at were ones that uh, somebody had uh, had the forethought enough to cover from the elements. So in his book, he's got like this uh, this vivid image of like an upside-down box or some newspaper um, covering some of the the Bossberg tracks. And so he goes out to look at those, and the way that he sees those tracks for the first time is at the side of a new acquaintance of his who had also been attracted to Bossburg by the name of Grover Krantz. Hmm. And so you get this picture of them sort of making each other's acquaintance while they're looking at uh, this extremely strange track find. And this would become a rather important relationship in the Bigfoot world. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as well in just a few moments, but it was Green and Krantz. Um, their relationship was really unique in that in Krantz, Green found somebody that he had been searching for for years, which was a scientist, an actual bona fide scientist who would take this subject seriously. I mean, that's one thing that comes through all of Green's writing is this, utter bewilderment as to why the scientific establishment would not have a greater interest in the topic. And finally in he finds someone who is in that world and is expressing an interest and is willing to get his hands dirty uh, doing so. So of all the things to happen coming out of Bosburg, I think that's by far the most significant because those two uh, would play off of each other really for the rest of their lives
0: right and the the, the the there's another case where there's all this infighting and to say nothing of the fact that the cripple Fo- the cripplefoot track is probably one of the most famous individual bigfoot casts you see i mean you constantly see that cripplefoot track being brought up as kind of a a major turning point i mean it's such an interesting track and then the trackway itself went for I mean, I want to say hundreds of yards. Am I wrong? I mean, it's like thousands. It was. It was. I want to say there's it was, it was like 1,200 individual tracks that they found,
3: mm-hmm.
0: something like that. I mean, it's a very long trackway.
1: Now, here is a really tantalizing bit of trivia, and it's it's almost conspiratorial, <laughs> but okay. um. I was listening to an interview that he did in 2007 and on the program Let's Talk Bigfoot and at the very very end of that interview he's asked about Bossberg. and his first com- the first words out of his mouth were very dismissive in tone and he said, "Oh, Bossberg, that whole thing was phony." Yeah. And then the line goes dead. <laughs> <laughs> and they can't get him back on the line, so it's like, "Wow, well, wait a minute, you know what? Tell us more." But I haven't heard anything else about his true thoughts on. on I think
0: I, I think the reason he's so dismissive of Bosberg was because of. Uh, oh my gosh, my my brain just went completely dead. What's his name? The the hoaxer. We've talked about him on the show before. Ivan Marks. Ivan Marks was living in Bossburg or around Bosburg yeah. around that same time definitely had involvement in that case. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like that case so much. It's it's so it's one of those puzzles you're trying to decipher whether or not there's a legitimacy to it or not. I mean, yeah, Marx was involved and he was there, but and I think he even said that he had, you know, casts and had made footprints in that area, but that those casts if I'm not if I'm not mistaken that that trackway actually went down into the river and then came back out on the other side. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, it's a very, if it's a hoax, it was a great hoax. Not to say that Mark's mm-hmm. couldn't pull it off, but it's a very interesting hoax. If it was a hoax.
1: Yeah. And I've, I've heard competing reports about Bosburg where there may have been more than one trackway. And one is exactly as you described, very sort of, you know, athletic quality to them and, and who could fake, these type of things and then there's another trackway that was essentially just by uh the berm of a road mm-hmm. you know where you could just somebody could hop out of a car that and, seems a little uh, more uh, walking a straight uh, line down the road and then hop back in the car and and go so that seems a little more mark style right there it's yeah. probably his mother or whatever yeah.
0: who was it that he stuck in the ape costume <laughs> i think
1: it was his wife or his yeah. mom uh, It can
2: be
0: done oh yeah uh
2: i heard of one well, in various specific instances. It's very hard to see how it could have been done. Uh, for instance, the what I just mentioned, where you have to make a thousand prints wow. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a matter that literally is in minutes, and yet they're so big that you'd have to you'd have to sculpt them. There's no way you can just walk along and make them. Uh, another case, there were prints an inch deep in a. On the sandbar, where uh, I personally jumped off a log about two feet high, and to get an imprint that deep, I had to land on the point of one heel. So either you've got tremendous weight, or again, you've had to to dig it out. But there's, you know, there's, there are pressure cracks in the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and,
1: and and I know I've, I've referenced this before, but one of my favorite chapters in. Apes Among Us is his his chapter on Ivan Marx mm-hmm. because yeah. he just makes this wonderful character sketch of a very uh, complex individual and he makes no bones about the fact he was there he was in the middle of all these things uh, you know you can you can uh, take what Marx says for whatever you think it's worth and you know he he does that in a very artful way I think yeah. All right, so 1970 is uh, the year he comes out with uh, The Year of the Sasquatch, his next book. And it's also at right around this time that the University of Idaho takes an interest in Grover Krantz's writings and actually publishes Krantz's articles. It's the Northwest Anthropological Research Notes, a bona fide research journal that put Krantz's articles out there and... uh, Green was tremendously excited about this because he felt finally there's some legitimacy to this this search that we have been uh, undertaking. And it's also at this time that uh, he really starts to collate his stories that he has uh, accumulated. You might say the database begins around 1970 to really put these into uh, a discernible order. Um, that leads up, of course to 1978. But uh, before that, just I want to say that in the early 70s, Green had reached a point where um, he sold his paper, actually, and was able to make a living off of selling his books and whatever sponsorship that he could get to continue the search. Um, He left the newspaper world behind and the search for Bigfoot, you know, became, truly became his life. And the estimates that I've seen on his books says that he's sold in the neighborhood of two hundred thousand copies, which is not New York Times bestseller, but that's a lot of bigfoot books too, by the same right. token.
0: Yeah, think of the subject. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Um seventy six, I talked about that briefly before, but he traveled extensively to meet as many other active researchers as possible and his this is so great. I mean, think of this travelogue. He hits places like Falk, Arkansas, and he went to Lake Worth, Texas, and actually talked to Sally Ann Clark, wow. who, wrote, who wrote the book right. you know, on the Lake Worth monster. So it's this sort of this Bigfoot road trip before Cliff Berrickman did it. Uh, <laughs> John Green was on the road talking to other researchers about their findings. And then... Very important 70s date is 78 when uh, Sasquatch the Apes Among Us comes out in its first edition.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. As I mentioned before, Green and DeHinden finally reached the point where uh, they were driven apart uh, by a couple issues. One that we talked about before was kill, no kill. And uh, John Green is clearly uh, pro-kill. We need a body. We have to have that to prove the existence of this creature, and science won't pay attention until then. R- uh, Rene de Hinden had reached a point you know, in the late 70s, evidently, where he was pretty much uh, no-kill, which is, again, kind of fascinating considering his his personality. The other issue was how to handle information. Hmm. And as we said, one thing about Green is that he was completely open, let's share information, let's get as much detail as possible from as many places as possible to help us make a profile of this creature that we're after. A De Hinden was completely the opposite. He was, sit on the information that you've got, keep it close to your vest, you know, don't, don't show your hand under any circumstances. And I, those two things really finally, you know, I don't think it was a... From Green's perspective, it probably was a fairly amicable split. From DeHinden's perspective, uh, no, not so much. And he resorted to the sort of name calling uh, for which he became infamous. Hmm. But, uh, you know, finally, you know, what we get with uh, John Green is this picture of a very level headed, uh, very rational, very sober thinker but at the same time very personable able to draw the stories out of people in a winsome sort of way and the other thing uh, that makes green so compelling is he's an excellent writer yeah i mean he's not a fancy writer by any stretch of the imagination but he's an excellent he he's a
0: newspaper he's a newspaper writer yeah you know, just very skillful it's just it, yeah it's that it's a very straightforward retelling of events, retelling of what he's been told it's it's not flowery, um his vocabulary doesn't seem to be huge it's he writes like a newspaper man, and you know like I said, as someone who's written for newspapers, when I read his writing, that's what I am drawn to the most is that as I'm reading it i can I can identify that so easily. From, from writing, I mean, I even know kind of the style that he's taking and the, the word choice he's using, why his sentences are shorter than some people might be, and it, it's just this very... I I love the fact that he is so analytical, but at heart, I really feel like, and, and I'm not saying this as a detraction, but I really feel like at heart, he was a storyteller, and this was the story he wanted to tell. He reached a point where he was done with his newspapers. He wanted to tell stories about Bigfoot. He he wanted to he I'm not saying he didn't want to uncover the truth about the mystery and he didn't want to, you know, prove the existence of the animal, but this was the the story he decided he wanted to spend the rest of his life telling.
1: And I think the result is that you know, people love to hear the story the way he told it. Mm -hmm. and uh, he's pulled many generations into a consideration of the search. Yeah. Real quick, I want to just give some some of John Green's actual takes on things, because I just find it fascinating. The thing I love about him is that unlike some quote-unquote researchers who just like to say, here's some interesting stories, and you consider them, um, and I'm not going to tell you what to believe about it. John Green was not afraid to have a take. And he just put it out there. And This is what I think about things. Um, one thing that is of extreme importance, really, is what he thought about the Patterson-Gimlin film. And at a certain point, he became very tired of talking about the stories, swirling around the Patterson-Gimlin film and, and what's, Potter, what's, uh, what's Roger Patterson's, Uh, personality like and what was he after and and so on and so forth and finally he he says um you know the movie does not depend on the story he's like look at the film you tell me what you see there Mm -hmm. and he uh gets into you know he took the film to disney and talked to people there and at the time they said they could not duplicate what was in the film and he talked to other folks in the movie business and uh they too said that this is not we cannot do this and you know of course john chambers name comes up all the time um but the investigation that green did on that point and and his final contention was you just have to look at the film and s- say one thing that can be ruled out is this is the last thing this is is a guy in a gorilla costume from the halloween store <laughs> In uh, Bluff Creek, or or in uh, that area in Yakima, or or some other location. Um, about Bob Titmus, you know, someone whose name has been dragged through the mud at this point uh, by a number of authors. Uh, but Green's opinion of Titmus was, he says, he was it, <laughs> uh, expert hunter. Uh, he says Willow Creek Museum, most of those uh, the casts in there are. Titmus finds. uh, Later in life, Bob Titmus actually bought a house from John Green and they lived as uh, fairly close neighbors in Harrison Hot Springs and uh, about the last 15 years of their life. So he was completely sold on Bob Titmus as being a uh, trustworthy and honest individual. And the same goes for uh, Bob Gimlin. Asked about Bob Gimlin, uh, John Green said he's absolutely. Salt of the earth, great guy, and what Bob Gimlin says happens is what what happened hmm. um, Last thing really I want to say about his you know his takes on things is that even though I think John Green today stands as the the quintessential flesh and blood uh, creature uh, purveyor, if you will, he was open-minded enough to write forewords for a wide range of Bigfoot books many of which get very strange and uh, he's he fi- this is the type of thing that he would write which is just brilliant I think he's, uh, he's quoted if Sasquatch have ever seen have ever been seen near UFOs I would prefer to consider it a coincidence or to assume that the occupants of the UFO were just looking at the Sasquatch or vice versa So, you know, it's just the type of uh, charming way of dealing with the subject, Um, I think, kind of stands as an emblem for the man. Uh, He was able to kind of build bridges where other people um, were not so successful. And his writing, I think, stands as just the very classics when it comes to uh, Sasquatch literature.
0: Join the conversation at Facebook.com slash sasswhat. Find us on Twitter by using the hashtag #Saswhat, or you can find me on Twitter at Seth Love. Mark Matsky is on Twitter at Reverend Matsky. Send your letters to SaswhatMail at gmail.com and leave us a rating and review on iTunes.